Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at Carthage College in Wisconsin. Before defecting to the United States in 1989, he was a member of a senior economics team that worked on President Gorbachev's reforms package of perestroika in the Soviet Union. After defecting to the United States, he was a senior fellow at the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., a U.S. federal research agency. His work involved briefing members of Congress and senior officials at the executive branch on issues of national security and foreign economic and military assessment. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Yuri Maltsev. Thank you so much for joining us, Yuri. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jan. So, Dr. Maltsev, I'd like to start off by asking you to tell us a bit about what it was like to grow up in post-World War II Russia, what daily life was like in the Soviet Union, and how it worsened from your childhood to when you, when you defected. When I would say that childhood, probably for everyone, was a happy time. And um, um, and I kind of, because you don't know anything else, then you enjoy, yeah, you usually enjoy where you are. And I enjoyed my my uh, uh, my childhood. Uh, I was born in Kazan, which is the capital of um, uh, Autonomous Republic of Tatarstan. And, um, um, and uh, most of my friends actually were young, um, young kids who were Tatars, and, um, and life was, was pretty good. But then when you grow up a little bit, then you realize where you are and that's, that's not uh, everything is perfect for you. And, my, um, and in my family especially, because my grandfather, um, uh, he was shot by Stalin in 1938. He was a chief architect of Sochi, that's a resort on the Black Sea. And my grandmother, she saved my 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 father um, because at that time Stalin had a special directive that an apple doesn't fall far from the apple tree, and so that means that if you take out a parent, then the whole family should be repressed or killed. And fortunately, she saved. Uh, she saved my father and myself definitely um, um, that they uh, they went to Kazan and and she was actually hiding there from that. Okay, so um, can you please tell us a bit about how the Soviet Union changed from when you were a child to when you you eventually eventually defected? You know what was what was daily life a bit like? And um, tell us a bit about about you know your your daily life in the Soviet Union. Well, Soviet Union. Um, uh, well, from now, from 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 my American experience, it was really very bleak and gray and kind of drag uh, kind of place. Uh, where people were spending a lot of time uh, trying to buy necessities, there was a shortages of everything. Then uh, what else was there? Um, that the people still tried to have a good life, um, but unfortunately that resulted mostly in, in a pandemic, I would say, kind of drunkenness. People were drinking a lot. Um, uh, then wrecking their health in all other ways, uh, so it wasn't uh, it wasn't a good place to to live. Um, however, I was kind of lucky because I graduated from the best university, Moscow State University, and I got my PhD 
over there and I was working for the government. So that means that I had an access to goods and services that many other people didn't. Um, but, uh, but I realized very well that the country was just ruined by that, that uh, wrong ideology. Yeah, and next I wanted to talk to you um, about your work for the Soviet government, um, especially with regards to perestroika. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, perestroika was a policy of economic liberalization pursued by the USSR under Gorbachev that allowed a certain degree of private enterprise and decreased centralized control over industries. So whilst in theory, it should have alleviated many of the economic issues facing the Soviet Union, the nation collapsed shortly after it was implemented. So Dr. Maltsev, I wanted to ask you to tell us a bit about the economic problems that the Soviet Union was facing prior to perestroika, what perestroika aimed to do and why it ultimately failed. Well, before perestroika, Soviet economy was um, um, uh, was uh, was not an economy at all. It was a command economy with no economic stimulus, with no economic incentives. It was um, it was a centrally planned economy, and I was at first very much disappointed by Mr. Gorbachev, who used to say that central planning is not bad, but the problem is that we didn't have a good plan, which is a very stupid thing to say, because central planning cannot, cannot work anywhere. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that, that uh, how, to, how to do it other ways. Uh, uh, Lech Valenza, the president of Poland lately, um, he, um, he used to say that it's very difficult to, to make, uh, to make um, uh, a fish soup um, out of aquarium, but it's impossible to make, make an aquarium again out of the fish soup. Uh, so the problem is that that the the Soviet economy or socialist economy in any other way that it destroys a lot of things. It destroys destroys people's idea of what economy should look like. It destroys institutions, and so that's why it was a very difficult task to to revive the the normal economy, the market economy, out of this mess which was a Soviet central planning and um, and because of that it was a very difficult task and again the people like mr gorbachev or mr rishkov prime minister of that time they didn't uh, they didn't have a clue how to do it and they didn't listen to 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 us so-called economic advisors and um, so it didn't work very well and um, and um, Soviet economy completely unraveled uh, when the Soviet Union itself unraveled in uh, 1991. And, um, and now we see the revival again of some kind of dictatorship in, the, uh, um, in uh, uh, like Mr. Putin. Um, so it's, um, it's, it was a difficult, a very difficult ride. And, um, and again, the problem was that that um, um, that the government ignored the rules of economics. The rules are just simple rules of supply and demand, and so that was the the, the I think the major 
the major problem for Soviet Union at that time and for Russia today. So next, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your journey in defecting to America. So what was it that prompted you to leave everything behind and flee your home country? And how did you make it to the United States, um, obviously with travel being um, prohibited? Oh, yes, <laughs> that maybe can be kind of uh, kind of funny thing to, to talk about, because um, um, I was um, I was sent to Finland for to um, uh, to lecture people there about perestroika, about what's happening in the Soviet Union, and um, and nobody could defect to Finland at that time because the Finns would uh, would actually return you back to Soviet Union, and you would automatically because it was considered to be treason, uh, and you would automatically get uh, twelve years of imprisonment uh, in Eastern Siberia, usually, uh, for trying to defect. So I was not looking for that kind of career change at all. And um, and what did I, uh, uh, I do in Finland? I was uh, trying to please my my colleagues and my many of my colleagues, that's kind of funny. Many of my colleagues asked me to bring them, uh, women wanted to bring them, um, um, mascara and uh, and lipsticks and uh, all men wanted only one thing uh, to get that would be condoms because it was 1989 if you remember that time it was the time when hiv epidemics when aids was kind of going rampant and uh, and so everybody wanted to be protected and um, so i went to, to finland and i was buying a lot of a lot of uh, 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 lipstick and condoms for uh, to please my my friends back in the Soviet Union. Moreover, at that time I was running for Soviet Parliament. I was thinking uh, of 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 being elected to Supreme Soviet of the USSR um, on Kaliningrad district in Moscow, and I was thinking, well, I would um, I would be more popular if I bring all these gifts back. And then I uh, I had a I had a speech at the Ministry of Finance of Finland, and after that speech, one gentleman I mean uh, was asking me whether I would like to I mean whether I am afraid of going back and and definitely I was not but uh, but I for some reason I said do you have other options and he said well if you're looking for options we can do something I said well go ahead and do it. And um, and so um, uh, he uh, he thought that we can that I can kind of defect from Sweden. And uh, at first I didn't even know whether I, I want to or whatever. Uh, but then I, I thought that if this is a, a real credible kind of offer, then I should follow it. And um, and so I I uh, we went to to Sweden because Sweden already would not return you back. I mean, Finland would, because Finland was under Soviet surveillance and whatnot, and Sweden was not. So, so I was in Sweden, and and then I was um, 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 debriefed by a lot of intelligence services of the Western countries, and um, and then after after my my summer, where I was just really debriefed by almost all of them. Uh, like 
CIA or British MI6 or Canadian and even even Australian service. And um, um, and then when I go to United States, to make long story short, I I was going through the uh, through the customs and uh, and they asked me to open my my suitcase and uh, sure enough there were boxes of condoms and lipstick and mascara and the customs officer uh, she was uh, she was just really very much surprised and she said uh, um, uh, for how long you are coming here and um, uh, and I and I and I had my Soviet diplomatic passport. She looked at that. She said, oh, you're coming for good. I said, I said, yeah, hopefully. And then she smiled and she said, uh, well, I wouldn't let you in for a weekend trip with all this stuff. And then she said, well, welcome to the United States. So that was a nice welcome. Wow, that that, that is hilarious. I'm, I'm sure our audience will have a good laugh um, listening to that. Um, so when, when you got to the United States, um, how did you, how did you end up, um, working at the, the Institute of, of Peace? Oh, yes. I, um, uh, when I, when I came to the United States, I didn't know what to do. And, uh, I've, um, um, I was pretty open for everything. I even applied for, um, uh, to be a manager in a janitorial business, uh, my first week in New York, and um, and uh, and I got the job, and then I called my friends because I had a lot of friends in the United States, and I uh, and I went to New York Public Library at that time. In the library, they had uh, all kind of yellow books and white books with um, uh, telephone books, in in another word. Uh, now we have them all in, on the internet, but. At that time, there was no, no, there, and, I, and I spent some time figuring out because when you defect, you don't take your Rolodex with you. And so I didn't, And um, uh, but I found a lot of friends whom I met back in Soviet Union. And I was also an exchange student in the United Kingdom uh, before. And uh, and so I found some friends and, and I called a friend of mine, Erastus Corning, um, uh, in Albany, New York, uh, because I thought that uh, uh, that I am already on my on my feet because because I didn't want to to bother them with uh, just asking for help. I, I wanted to be kind of on my own and then and then to talk to them as, as an equal. And um, and the Rastas immediately came down to New York and picked me up and and um, uh, and I told him that Rastas I. I already kind of in a janitorial business. I signed paperwork, and he said, "Well, he, he was in my apartment in in Moscow, and he said uh, any business but janitorial you will <laughs> fail on that because my um, my 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 apartment was not was not as clean as it should be for a janitorial uh, kind of a successful person." And um, and so since then I am doing the same thing. I'm uh, I'm doing public speaking and whatnot. And I applied. Uh, my first my first week in Albany, New York. It was it actually was like my third week in the United States. We were um, with the help of Erastus. I sent seven hundred twenty applications for work. 
in the United States to different places. And, um, and then I, I got, I would say, maybe about 50 responses. And, um, and one of them was from the United States Peace Institute. And, um, and it was a, was a perfect time. And so I got this very prestigious um, fellowship, uh, 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 this uh, uh, Jennings Bryan um, uh, Distinguished Fellow of the United States Institute of Peace in Washington, D.C., uh, which, was, uh, which was really, uh, really a fantastic kind of appointment. Uh, but even before that, I, go, I, I worked for something called International Center for Development Policy, also in Washington, D.C., uh, for maybe six or seven months. And, uh, and that was was very interesting job as well. But then U.S. Institute of Peace is, um, is, um, is, uh, is, is a great place to work um, because I got a, I got a position. Uh, there were like 300, um, 300 applicants for that. So, so I got that and I worked there for, for a year. It's, it's one year position. And after that, I was looking for a job and I found one. Uh, here in Wisconsin at Carthage College, uh, which I really like, and I like, I like the state. I like the weather. I like everything here. Well, yeah, that that is that is a very interesting story. So, what happened to your your family back in the Soviet Union? Um, were, were were you worried that they were going to be punished, or how did this how how did the Soviet Union respond to you just leaving abruptly? Well, the. Uh, I was, as I mentioned before, I was I was an exchange student in the United Kingdom in uh, the end of 1970s. And at that time, I was being to defect from Soviet Union. I would be just so happy to leave. But, but I couldn't because, as you rightly put it, that I, I, uh, my family would be hostages to Soviet regime and they would be punished. And my father was alive, and and they would be all sent from Moscow somewhere else, and they would lose their jobs. But um, but already in 1989, I kind of felt that the regime is already softening up. That's one thing, and it's not so coercive as it was before. And so when I when I defected, then um, my my sister and my mom, uh, that's the people I left behind, um, they were uh, they were in order to KGB, and the KGB just was asking them where I am. And fortunately, I was told not to tell anyone where I am, and I didn't tell them because they, they saw the CIA people told me that if they would know, then the KGB would find it out as well. And um, and so they, so then nothing much happened to them except that my sister lost her job, uh, and she was uh, she was fired from the medical university in Moscow. And um, uh, but then I was reunited with them when Soviet Union collapsed very very soon after I left. Um, well, before the collapse of Soviet Union, I was definitely considered to be a, to be kind of a traitor. But when Soviet Union collapsed, I immediately was from traitor, I was turned to a hero. Uh, 
and um, and nothing bad happened to them. And then they arrived to the United States. And my mom, she is in Chicago. She lives in Chicago as well as my as well as my sister. So so we are kind of a happy family together again. So shortly after you left the USSR, it collapsed in Russia, transformed it collapsed and, and Russia transformed into a pseudo democratic capitalist nation, or at least it was until President Putin took over. So as many of you would know, Putin has transformed Russia into a nation bordering on autocracy, consolidating power in the office of the presidency. So, Dr. Maltsev, I wanted to get your opinion on the transformation of Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union and whether it is better off now and likely to remain that way under President Putin. Yes, when Soviet Union collapsed, um, then it collapsed. Actually, many people don't know how did it collapse. It collapsed because Boris Yeltsin, at that time president of Russian Federation, he declared independence from Soviet Union. And that was in December, just uh, just this month. Uh, yes, it was uh, it was actually 1991. It would be would. Uh, 30 years exactly, almost up to this day, um, uh, that was the collapse of the Soviet Union, the last evil empire of this planet. And what Mr. Uh, Mr. Yeltsin, he, um, uh, he had a lot of promise. And at first he was, uh, uh, I mean, there was a lot of hope uh, uh, invested in him, by the way. And because he collapsed the Soviet Union, because how you can have a union if Russia is out? And, um, and uh, he had uh, some, uh, some very good economists around him and who tried to do the transition right. But Mr. Yeltsin, I think it was very good time until 1994. And then the KGB, I think, planted so-called friend to him. And that was uh, somebody called Boris Korzhakov, who was a general of the KGB. And uh, he was appointed as, as, um, as a um, um, uh, commander of the detail of the security service for President Yeltsin. But instead of that, they were just began to drink together because Mr. Korzhakov was also he was a very interesting person because he was a good musician and he would compose some some uh, poems and whatnot and then then began began to be kind of drinking bodies and uh, that's the was the way that mr yeltsin was um, was uh, kind of reduced from his position of power to almost position of following what the KGB would say. Uh, at that time, the Russians would say that that Yeltsin is uh, um, uh, so-called governing under influence, GUI. It's kind of like not driving under influence, but governing under influence. And that was very, very sad because, because the second half of the 90s was almost lost for Russia. And then came Mr. Putin, and he is a KGB career officer, and um, and that's what he was uh, um, that's what he was doing with Russia. Having said that, however, as bad as Mr. Putin is, and as bad as Russia is, Russia Russian political 
seen as today, uh, it's still better than Soviet Union. And that's why many Russians still, still support him. However, right now he is a threat to, he is a threat to the world stability because, because he is against Ukraine, which is an independent state. And uh, he, is, uh, he is, I think, trying to coerce his Ukraine and other members of the something called um, Commonwealth of Independent States, which sounds like an oxymoron, uh, to be in the orbit of, of his, uh, his would-be empire. And he already coerced Ukraine. I mean, he, he invaded Ukraine in 2014. It's already seven years ago. And and go to Crimea to back to Russia, and um, and um, uh, so I'm I'm not I'm not a friend of his at all because I think that he is still has a KGB thinking, and um, and and it's very sad that Russians would elect the person like him as the president. Can you imagine the KGB murdered anywhere from 40 to 60 million people in Russia? And and um, and can you imagine if if the Gestapo SS officer in Germany would be elected as uh, even as a even as a as a as a dog catcher in a remote village? That would be a tragedy. And and in Russia, they they and I don't know how free are these elections because Mr. Putin is uh, is uh, kind of a power freak. So I think that many of these elections, so called, uh, were being were being um, uh, 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 kind of falsified by by him and his and his cronies. So next, I wanted to get your take on some of the economic parallels that ha- that you've been so vocal about um, between the former Soviet Union and the United States. So you've talked openly about the dangers of America succumbing to the same sorts of policies that have proved so economically destructive in the past. So Dr. Maltsev, can you please tell us a bit more about the kind of policy initiatives that you see are being pursued in the United States that resemble the failed policies of the Soviet Union? Yes, that's the the growth of the big government, that's uh, almost, yes, the, the, the government intrusion to economy in the United States is, is getting out of hand, especially now. And um, I think Hayek, the great Austrian economist, uh, Friedrich August von Hayek, he used to say that greatly increase the power of government and restrict the, the rights of the people especially personal liberties, you need a crisis. Crisis can be real, imaginary, or or, or fabricated. Now we have all three. With these pandemics, I don't know. It's just ridiculous what is happening. Uh, The role of of the government and the economy is, is right now outstanding. Now, the Biden administration wants to wants to spend what five point three trillion already in in this, and that would be and that that's that's just the, the amazing amount, uh, which which actually is is very detrimental to to to, to almost everything. Now we have eleven million uh, 
vacancies in the United States and only 8 million people who are unemployed. And um, and this is this is this is not a healthy kind of situation at all. Um, then um, we have already with inflation, uh, the highest rate of inflation in 35 years, and uh, and I don't see uh, how it would end because uh, because uh, Biden administration spokespeople they're saying this is some kind of tran transitory inflation. I don't know what is transitory. But most economists believe that it would go through to all the way into into 2020s. Uh, so um, so that's one thing. Another thing is is uh, social and cultural changes, and social and cultural changes are just straight from Lenin's playbook. The people are being pit against each other. I mean, like I don't know, whites against blacks. Uh, parents against children, children against parents. So everybody is in so-called crisis, and um, uh, and this is this is very sad. There is attack on all cultural values of this country, and uh, um, and um, uh, yes, on religion, on on our freedoms. So I'm I, I'm not so um, I'm not so positive about changes. And I, to tell the truth, I am too old to defect again. So I don't know what will happen. I'm glad you touched on cultural changes. A recent poll showed that 70% of millennials would vote for a socialist. So while I think that when they say socialist, they mean more Bernie Sanders and less Karl Marx, the number is still astounding nonetheless. So as a general trend, older people have always leaned more conservative than younger people, but this disparity has grown to extremely high levels with the nation being more politically polarized than ever. So I wanted to ask you what you think is behind the increasing rate of young people abandoning liberal ideals in favor of higher and higher um, rates of government involvement in the economy? Well, I think that the reason is the, the, um, uh, the educational system, which was completely, which right now is completely run by the by the left, uh, it's uh, it's just amazing. I mean, I I uh, um, I am uh, teaching in the United States for over thirty years, and I never I never uh, would expect that young people coming from high schools are so much indoctrinated in this. And by socialism, I mean I don't see much of a difference between between socialism of Karl Marx and Bernie Sanders, I, that's just the same thing. And Bernie Sanders is, uh, yes, he is a socialist. He, he loves Soviet Union. He had a Soviet Union flag in his office uh, all, all when he was he lived in, in, in and he was a, a mayor in, in Vermont. Um, it, it's just, just absolutely ridiculous because socialist, um, uh, socialist democracy is an oxymoron. There is no such a thing. It's the same thing as to say that that uh, that gulag is democratic. No, it is not, and and it cannot be, because if you need to introduce the the um, um, the uh, abolition of private property, you definitely would have people who would not like to part with their property. And so what you need to do is to kill them or to coerce them to giving them to give to to give their property up and become slaves. 
because socialism is slavery, it's nothing else. Yes, it's a public slavery. And uh, and uh, you can you can kind of put an ice an icing on that cake, saying that uh, like Mr. Sanders saying that it's democratic socialist, but but this is very sad. The only good thing about young people being socialists is I think that they don't understand what socialism is. And uh, I think there's uh, Winston Churchill used to say that if you are 20 and you are not a socialist, you don't have a heart. And if you are 30 and you still uh, is a socialist, you don't have brain. And that's, I think that's what, what kind of reflects this, this idea. But if, if we would go further on with this and more people would become socialists, then at the end of the American, great American experiment. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you, and I'm sure our audience will learn a lot from this interview. So thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Moltsev. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.